what you'll hear on Patreon. Now, putting aside the fact that this is mathematically vacuous as a theory of human behavior, if you nonetheless believe in this vacuous theory, then you're going to observe that people mostly don't act like that in any non-vacuous sense. And then you're going to start saying, oh gosh, they're so irrational. I need to force them to climb the hill. <laughs> and that's actually, yeah, that's actually the theory of neoliberalism. I'm at a Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Eli Senesh is my name. So it is emphasis on the first syllable in my last name. I wasn't sure. <laughs> um, I think I would sort of introduce myself as, if I'm being a bit hipster, maybe a computational affective scientist. Affect meaning like emotion. Mm -hmm. um, my old, one of my old co-PIs, Lisa, that's Lisa Feldman Barrett. She used to say, like, if you successfully make it through your PhD, you're sort of founding your own subfield that you're going to work on. And I took that to heart because there's a lot of people who work on affect and emotion. And specifically, often they're linked to a field called neuroeconomics and is unfortunately what it sounds like. Neuroeconomics by Paul J. Zak, 2004. Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, Series B. Neuroeconomics is an emerging transdisciplinary field that uses neuroscientific measurement techniques to identify the neural substrates associated with economic decisions. Economics here should be interpreted in the broadest possible sense, as any human or non-human decision process that is made by evaluating alternatives. A classic non-human example is optimal foraging, where, for example, an ungulate must decide when to expend energy to move from the patch of grass it is currently eating to a different location with an uncertain quantity and quality of grass. A human example would be whether to accept a job as a stock analyst at Goldman Sachs for $100,000 per year, but with few future pay increases or advancement, versus a job as a stockbroker for a small company starting at $40,000 per year, but with the potential for much greater income if successful and the risk of being fired if not. Both of these examples can be expressed mathematically as constrained optimization problems that generate empirically testable predictions. Marx, Classical Economics, and the Problem of Dynamics Henrik Grossman, first published, 1941 Page 10 The fourth period of political economy, after 1848, fell in the time of fully developed class antagonisms, which were clearly visible in the battles of the June days in Paris, when for the first time the workers fought for their own goals. The result was the complete dissolution of the Ricardian school and a turning away from any real theory. Some thinkers abandoned economic theory, replacing it with historical description. Alternatively, economic theory was degraded to a pseudo-theory in that it completely abandoned the terrain of economic reality to take flight into the higher regions of psychology. What is a computational affective scientist? Sure. So that means someone who's trying to figure out affect, which is emotion. Then there's science, which of course means that you want to be rigorously theoretical and experimental. So on the theoretical side, you probably want to use math. On the experimental side, you're going to want to study real people and real living things. 
And then computational means that you're going to want to write computer algorithms or computer models of things. Now, this isn't really the sci-fi thing about like you want to simulate a brain or something, because that would be, you know, A, like simulating something with feelings, if you know it's conscious and have feelings is like deeply unethical. But actually, I would I would say that the real meaning of it is sometimes there are math problems you can't solve on pen and paper with a closed form analytical formula. Like there would just be, you know, infinitely many algebraic terms to write down or something, or there would be no formula for them. And it turns out that using, you know, computer simulations, you can often just get really good numerical approximations. So computational is a way of saying, hey, I think that this kind of approximation, like getting close to something but not necessarily accessing its platonic form is, you know, maybe a part of what goes on in nature. So what is this actually used for? So at the, I guess I would say at the extreme translational end, there are people who suggest theories about how certain affective neurotransmitters play a role in mental illness. Then there's also people who suggest how neural computations can play a role in mental illness. So we can we can get into a bit more detail, but you know, on the very applied end, the idea is to treat diseases by understanding what it is the brain is doing. And let's say if you have an understanding of what it's doing right, of what it means for the brain to be healthy rather than just normal then you can have a more accurate understanding of how it goes wrong as opposed to abnormal. So this sounds probably very good to most people. Does it have any connection to the rise of, of technology as a kind of diagnostic tool, uh, whether, you know, as a surveillance diagnostic tool? Is, there, is, there, is this in the same ballpark? Um, I would say we're sort of the scientific adversaries of that. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so, you know, I mentioned Lisa Barrett, and she's actually been in court to give testimony saying, hey, you can't actually read someone's emotions off their face, mm. nor off, you know, their perspiration rate, the electrical conductivity of their skin, like all of these things that people try to measure in order to see inside your head and get at what you're really thinking and feeling. None of it works. Like most what about of the, all the hype about the eye movements and stuff that, that you could use the camera on a mobile phone to get track people's eye movements. And so there might be something to that, but if there is, it's because you're just observing motor movements. Like the eyes are just, you know, they're motor movements. So it's a bit akin to saying you can catch Parkinson's early by seeing that someone has a tremor. Right. Like if you see the eyes developing something like a tremor, because they're these very finely controlled muscles, then okay, maybe someone is developing, you know, neurodegenerative illness like Parkinson's or something. Schizophrenia. I know that people always want to apply these things to schizophrenia because it's sort of 
you know, it, like it's the final boss of mental illnesses. But the problem is that we, in, when we examine the brains of people with schizophrenia, there may be five different things that we're calling schizophrenia. So a big theme of the work that I've done and will be doing is trying to take apart these labels and categories that we keep slotting things into and say, what are the underlying mechanisms? Because only by understanding things in terms of their underlying mechanisms, can we actually do better than just socially constructing a category and sticking someone in it when we want to patientize them. <laughs> right. Although I, I suppose the extreme constructionists would say that um, even if you are looking at the un underlying brain, you know, morphology, you are still saying like that particular thing is an illness, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, I'm the yeah. extreme constructionist. <laughs> That's what I am <laughs> oh. saying. Like, oh, okay. You know, like, met, like, I don't want to go full Foucault, right? Mm -hmm. But to a certain degree, without a normative theory of the brain, there is no way to distinguish mental illness from a purely social category. Right. You can't say what's going right in neurotypical brain function. For instance, you know, what's going right in your visual cortex that keeps you from hallucinating? Just you know, seeing things that aren't there, hearing voices, etc. If we can't give an account of what's going right, then how can we ever give an account of what's going wrong? I suppose the way that they try to get around that with the DSM anyway is to say if it in interferes with your functioning, which yeah. again is, is if not- If it brings um, you to the doctor's office, if it gets social services called on you, or just if it's too far from the average, then yeah, they'll try and classify it, which is just like- I'd even call it an artifact of the way we process our data in neuroscience. You know, often what we do is just compare things to an average. So we'll take a big sample of brains, you know, image them in an fMRI scanner, and that converts the images into little numbers in a computer. You know, then we can take the literal arithmetic mean of those numbers, which is just add all the ones that are in the same, um, point in the space, like the same pixel in 3D space, add all of them up and then divide by how many you have, just like we all learned in maybe primary school. And then say, well, that's the average brain here. We'll study the deviations from the average. Okay. But so now here's where I would be a mathematician and say, okay. But by taking an average and then maybe calculating a variance or a standard deviation around that average, you're actually assuming something. You're assuming that all brains are drawn from a platonic uh, normal distribution, a bell curve, mm. maybe a very high dimensional bell curve, but you're still assuming that the bell curve is what's real and the observations you're making are artifacts of noise or variation relative to that bell curve. And you're doing that because it's easy for you to calculate with that. Not because you have any real scientific reason to believe in it. And of course, I mean, this 
make sense in terms of, you know, looking at the sort of medicalization of everyday life, where as soon as you start to construct these averages and these norms, then people will start to say, well, make me normal, right? But the norm is constructed from all of the data. So you can't, once you sort of make everybody the norm, you create new outliers and so on and so forth. It's not really a, it's not really possible to kind of make somebody normal because normal is a statement about variation. Like, you know, normal is, the normal is just the average of all the variation. It doesn't tell you anything necessarily about what's generating the variation, which could be, for instance, let's be a little Marxist and say material conditions. You know, maybe someone with three jobs who was beaten as a child has a different neurotype than someone with one job as a tenured professor at Harvard (laughs) who had a lovely, safe childhood. Maybe those people have two different neurotypes for reasons that aren't about Gaussian noise, you know, aren't about white noise. It's actually about just differences in their life histories. You know, maybe the person who has three jobs and a bad childhood is in some way rational because like their neurotype is the rational thing that ought to develop in their circumstances. And it would be strange if, if it wasn't right. So, you know, sometimes a lot is made of neuroscience because it seems to offer this kind of this truth, this like, well, I, how do I know what was really happening? Can I trust how someone answers a survey or can I trust how someone answers an interview? And they think like, if we could just get directly in, then we will get at the truth. So it becomes a stand in for, for truth. I always think about this with the the free hug signs. You ever see people out on the street where they're mm-hmm. like free hugs and they're hugging people and they're like, because hugs release endorphins. It's not like the like it's a blah, an explosion of endorphins in your head, like cause and effect. No, you must interpret this situation as the kind of thing that is nice and lovely in a culture in which hugging is nice and lovely. And usually that person that you are hugging is nice and lovely. Whereas if a fucking person that I hate and smells really bad comes up and hugs me, I'm not going to get a uh, magical like burst of endorphins. I'm going to feel really <laughs> gross. And so all you're really doing a lot of the time is saying something is happening in my brain when I enjoy something. Wow. Thank you. That's, that's great. What did you expect? Right. To find? And if you were, if you were a materialist, you know, if you think we're actually made of meat and not an immaterial ghostly soul looking at you, Descartes, you know, then of course something's happening when you feel something. The question is what and why? And as it turns out, you know, when we try to actually rigorously investigate the neuroscience and not just go with, you know, this is being very flippant, but I will say it, not just go with, you know, dead white men theories from the 19th century then it turns out that a lot of what's happening in your brain is caused by what's happening in your body and what's happening in your environment. You're always a situated being embedded in an environment and you know embodied in everything that goes on below the neck. That's always how it's been. Like if you think you're a real person with a real subjectivity, Congratulations, you're smarter than, you know, most of cognitive science and neuroscience. Just one more example of this. I was listening to CBC Radio years and years and years ago. Or maybe it was BBC, but anyways, it was a show about um, being tone deaf. The following program was first broadcast in 2011. One, two, three. 
That, I'm afraid, is me and my first ever singing lesson with my supernaturally patient singing coach, Heather Meyer Thomas. Unfortunately for you and for me, there will be much more of that later. My name is Satnam Sanghera, I'm a writer and journalist, and I have lived my whole life firmly believing I am tone deaf. But am I? 15% of us say we are, but is this a condition we are born with, which leaves us with no hope of ever holding a tune, or are we just bad singers? And if our tunelessness is a biological matter, is there anything that could be done to retune our brains? So what we found was that when you compare tone-deaf individuals with matched controls, people who are tone-deaf have smaller or, or even absent branch of the arcuate fasciculus, which is a major highway of white matter that connects the endpoints of gray matter that are responsible for auditory perception and sound production, respectively. So these connections are smaller, um, maybe even absent in tone-deaf individuals. What if my brain just doesn't have the right connection to be able to make me sing? Is that it? Would that mean I'd never be able to hold a tune? Psyche Louie again. There are a lot of studies now showing that the brain can change given enough practice. Uh, And we know that with different studies on musical training and and with juggling and and with taxi cab drivers and and so on, that if you really exercise a part of the brain a lot, then that actually changes the white matter and gray matter of of the relevant region. And I was like, congratulations, you just said that you can learn music. They had to go on this huge quest. To finally come back to the point of saying things can be learned. But it became the sort of mystification, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, look, in my brain, I'm not recognizing these tones. Ergo, that's some kind of truth. It's, it amazes me. I think, I don't know, just as a sociologist, I think, you know, the socialization process is so important. And I have a background in anthropology. And a human variation is so huge. This notion that you could find the truth of being human within the brain itself it's extraordinarily one-sided. Right. Like most of what you're going to find in someone's brain is what was put there by their life experience. You know, really evolution builds in the capacity for plasticity and the capacity for learning and development to match your environment. Like this is why we are quote unquote smarter beings than say the macaque monkeys that I study here at Vanderbilt because our behavior is less stereotyped and relies more on learning and development. This is, you know, this is why we have civilization. That's exactly it. Like, that's the only reason why human beings still exist today. We're, we're utterly useless. You know, we haven't got decent nails or anything. It's, it's our ability to learn and adapt to our environments. And actually, so speaking of learning, like, let's bring in the computational bit a bit, a little. One of the interesting things that computer science has taught the field of neuroscience is that a lot of these a priori theories based on, so to speak, someone's intuitions about what it means to think or to feel are just totally unworkable in the real world. So the history of the field of artificial intelligence starts with a little prehistory where cybernetics develops at the end of, you know, roughly the end of World War II and into the early post-war era. Then due to academic politics, it gets displaced. People come in with quote-unquote artificial intelligence, and they say, ah, we'll have machine vision solved by the end of the summer with these 
methods based on, you know, symbolic logic. So like the stuff they teach in, I think in some high schools, in most analytical philosophy programs, like the stuff with the upside down A and the backwards E for all there exists, blah, 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 you know, X, P of X, like all this funny math notation. And I'm calling it funny math notation because that research program completely burned itself out by the eighties, total failure. And then for a long time, you had to call your research something else if you were working on computational approaches to thought. So you had people call it machine learning instead. And they started from a totally different foundation, which was statistics. And they tried to tackle much easier problems first. And their research was actually largely a success. <laughs> At least, you know, on its own ma purely mathematical terms. Then it all blows up in the late 2000s. And you get what we now call artificial intelligence, which is so-called deep learning, which is really just a way of saying, I, you know, I'll figure out how to throw more memory and more CPU power at doing <laughs> statistics. So like the computational part of my work is really just glorified statistics. You know, like take things from classical, um, I think we call it Bayesian statistics and do them with much more resources in a computer. And that's pretty much it. And that's given us all of these successes. And unfortunately, because it's been so successful, everyone now wants to sort of reimpose the classical conceptual frameworks on top. So they'll take something that finds statistical patterns in a lot of data, and then they'll stick a sort of output onto it that says, I want you to tell me which of the six categories of emotion this base belongs to. Who said there were six? <laughs> I said there were six. Well, okay, a very old theory of emotion that is in psychology now considered. I don't think anyone in affective psychology or affective science thinks it's entirely true anymore, but it's still a common element of conversation. Well, the, com the computational people, they didn't work with any you know affective scientists in grad school. They don't know that. So they just take this completely old so-called outmoded so-called classical theory, reimpose it as part of the structure of their statistical data analysis. And then they turn the crank and they get an answer. And it turns into that old question about, you know, the old question that someone asked Charles Babbage. If you ask the machine the wrong question, will the right answer come out? <laughs> or as we say nowadays, garbage in, garbage out. Like if you impose false philosophical assumptions on high technology, you will still get nonsense, but you'll be fooling yourself, mystifying it to yourself that it's not nonsense because a machine told you. And of course, this was made famous by the COVID simulations in which there was, they, you know, put all of these assumptions into the model. Like no one ever does anything unless the government tells them to. So it's mm -hmm. just like, <laughs> you have a whole population of people who are like, go this way go this way instead of thinking, breathing human beings. But wh why does this lead us astray when it comes to emotion? Because there aren't fixed emotion categories. 
artificial intelligence is misreading human emotion. The Atlantic, April 27, 2021, by Kate Crawford. The claim that a person's interior state can be accurately assessed by analyzing that person's face is premised on shaky evidence. A 2019 systematic review of the scientific literature on inferring emotions from facial movements, led by the psychologist and neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett, found there is no reliable evidence that you can accurately predict someone's emotional state in this manner. It is not possible to confidently infer happiness from a smile, anger from a scowl, or sadness from a frown, as much of current technology tries to do when applying what are mistakenly believed to be the scientific facts, the study concludes. So why has the idea that there is a small set of universal emotions readily interpreted from a person's face become so accepted in the AI field? To understand that requires tracing the complex history and incentives behind how these ideas developed, long before AI emotion detection tools were built into the infrastructure of everyday life. The idea of automated affect recognition is as compelling as it is lucrative. Technology companies have captured immense volumes of surface-level imagery of human expressions, including billions of Instagram selfies, Pinterest portraits, TikTok videos, and Flickr photos. Much like facial recognition, affect recognition has become part of the core infrastructure of many platforms, from the biggest tech companies to small startups. Whereas facial recognition attempts to identify a particular individual, affect recognition aims to detect and classify emotions by analyzing any face. These systems already influence how people behave and how social situations operate, despite a lack of substantial scientific evidence that they work. Automated affect detection systems are now widely deployed, particularly in hiring. The AI hiring company HireVue, which can list Goldman Sachs, Intel, and Unilever among its clients, uses machine learning to infer people's suitability for a job. The psychologist and neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett puts it bluntly, Companies can say whatever they want, but the data are clear. They can detect a scowl, but that's not the same thing as detecting anger. This is the danger of automating emotion recognition. These tools can take us back to the phrenological past, when spurious claims were used to support existing systems of power. The decades of scientific controversy around inferring emotional states consistently from a person's face underscores a central point. One-size-fits-all detection is not the right approach. Emotions are complicated, and they develop and change in relation to our cultures and histories, all the manifold contexts that live outside the AI frame. But already, job applicants are judged unfairly because their facial expressions or vocal tones don't match those of other employees. Students are flagged at school because their faces appear angry, and customers are questioned because their facial cues indicate they may be shoplifters. These are the people who will bear the cost of systems that are not just technically imperfect but based on questionable methodologies. A narrow taxonomy of emotions is being coded into machine learning systems as a proxy for the infinite complexity of emotional experience in the world. You know, there are no more fixed emotion categories than there are... Sorry, it's hard to find the right word because, you know, we do tend to categorize everything. So people talk about dog breeds, right? And the actual way that you produce a dog breed is that you, the breeder, select some traits that you happen to like. And then you say, I'm going to pair dogs who have those traits, and I'm going to remove from the family tree dogs that don't have those traits. And even then, only a fraction of each litter will quote unquote breed true. 
And that's because the breed itself is not a real thing at all. Like biologically, it doesn't exist. Nothing there. So actually, speaking of dog breeds, you know, my, one of my dogs back home is an American pit bull terrier. And we have to tell everyone that she is a mixed breed because despite being, you know, the sweetest little thing, there's quote, you know, there's all this breed specific legislation. Does American pit bull terrier exist? Well, not really. Like biologically, the definition of a species or subspecies is whether something can reproduce with something else. So if an American pit bull terrier and a golden retriever can have puppies, that means ultimately they're both dogs. Is there variation between them? Of course. But the variation is the natural part and the breed is the unnatural category imposed by humans. Emotions are like this. You can have a you can have a state, a physical state of your body. Your heart's racing. Your pupils are dilated. You're clenching your fist. But if we ask, are you, oh, and your attention, let's say, psychologically, is directed towards something outside your body. Now, are you anxious or angry? And the <laughs> real answer is, of course, like, yes and no. <laughs> you know, there isn't really a hard line that you can draw between those two things. And ultimately, the reason we draw those category lines is because we're trying to perform specific emotional behaviors to communicate with other people who have acquired those same categories. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of cultures that have completely different emotion categories, actually. And like, you know, the ancient Greeks said that your brain was a device for cooling the blood, right? Because they thought all <laughs> the thinking and feeling happens in the heart which then pumps out this like vibrant energetic fluid to the rest of, to energize the rest of the body. And then the brain sort of cools it down. You know, plenty of cultures would say that a passion moves you. So there's a lot of that in Shakespeare or in old Greek literature, like you're acted upon by this spirit or this passion that comes upon you from outside, you know, in a lot of, Let's see, the old and medieval Hebrews, like the Jews, believed in a tripartite soul, which actually sort of maps to like the modern triune brain theory of like lizard brain, mammal brain, human brain, which is, of course, completely false, but, you know, a nice demonstration of cultural variation. So really, we're constantly trying to box our feelings into something that someone else will understand so that we can either sort of perform for them. Like if I'm angry, well, I'm probably in a fight with someone. Or, you know, like, or getting frustrated at the news for my partner. If no one's there, what's the point to, you know, like, if no one's there to see you being angry, are you really angry? Probably not. You're probably some other more complicated thing. Part of the reason why this matters is because, well, for me, I think anyway, and tell me if you disagree, but I think this matters because something has happened where emotion increasingly is centered in public life, where we, you know, in questioning 
the Enlightenment emphasis on reason and how that was exclusionary and so on, people began to make a case to allow emotion in. And you see this in in kind of cheesy, embarrassing ways in mainstream politics when they're like, oh, if only more women were in politics, it would bring in more feeling and warmth and all these sort of stereotyped, highly insulting ways. Um, but it also comes in where people, you know, they start to say, you know, there is no truth. Everything is socially constructed. And then when you but they will do this sort of ontological gerrymandering where they say, like, all of these things that I don't like, they're social constructions, but they need an anchor for truth still. They need something to be real. And so in that way, emotion, constructions of emotion become reified. They become there. They are made real and they become a new anchor for meaning and truth. So I feel this way. And how could you question my feelings about it? But only, of course, some some emotions. So, like, I feel this way, ergo, this is my truth. Right. If you're like a man and you feel like a strong sexual passion inappropriately, that is not a truth. That is, you may take that elsewhere, good sir. But there's this emotion strikes me as a very, very poor replacement for reason as something that we can base a politics on. I would actually, I'm sorry, but I am going to, you know, be my advisor's advisee and say that's another false dichotomy. Like the, the actual philosophical fault for all this, I would say, rests with like David Hume. You know, he pretty much laid down this rule that everyone likes to quote, like they're a bunch of sophomores in college, saying, you can't reason from an is to an ought. And then everyone pretty much goes forward for the next several centuries, and they develop what's called, I think, moral philosophy. And it's all about you know, moral philosophy is a field that's more like mathematics. It's about working out the consequences of certain fixed assumptions, fixed and disembodied assumptions. So like what, you know, generates the most utility, that's what you should do, or what follows the moral law and the principles of universal assent, sorry, Kant's categorical imperative. That's what you should do. Or what makes you virtuous? That's what you should do. Well, the problem is, you know, unless you start with some assumption of where an ought comes from in the first place, they're saying, then, you know, you're effectively groundless. And this all made nice sense in a time when, so to speak, the development of capital R reason, reason as a category was really modeled on mathematics. And so it meant that, of course, you start with core assumptions. You know, all the Enlightenment philosophers, you know, had a bit in their book where they would say, the following is self-evident and I know it's true and it's a premise I'm going to work from. And I would say, eh, well, really we need a notion of reason I think capital R reason that is a lot closer to learning from experience or even to experiencing as such, because otherwise you never get that initial foot on the gas pedal of quote unquote, I think they call it normativity, a reason why you ought to do something or even would want to do something. And so with that false dichotomy in place, you know, of 
I think Adorno addressed this, right? Like of reason being purely instrumental. If then, if this assumption, then that conclusion follows. If you want to achieve this goal, this plan of action follows. But there's no reason, there's no capital R reason anymore to favor one goal over another. Well, then you say, okay, well, it's all based on your personal feelings. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get the emotion, my truth. You know, I feel it in my heart. And so you can't debate with me what's actually good for me. The notion of an interest, you know, a gra- like a grounded interest, an interest that you have by virtue of the kind of material being that you are, goes straight out the window. Or at least it becomes considered sort of philosophically unjustifiable. You have to have one in order to do politics, we would say. And in continental philosophy, they mostly didn't construct this false dichotomy in the first place. The distinction is a construction, but it's a useful one. Um, So you can't escape social construction. Like as human beings, we divide up the world, we symbolically label it, and we have to do that in order to communicate with each other. We have to delimit the meaning of particular words in order to specify what we're talking about. That's what we do as human beings. We are condemned always to be mediators, always to engage with reality in a mediated way, symbolically. Um, So I think you can't escape construction by saying something is a social construction. You can say that is a social construction that is not particularly useful. (laughs) And this particular construction is useful in many ways. So reason, um, reason as in a capacity to think and reflect is is a much more useful anchor for politics for universality, for some something that makes us equal as human beings, this sort of thing, the vast majority of us, or at least as a human, you have this capacity, whether or not it actually, for whatever reason, you are able to engage it. Um, but emotion is a loose one, as you, as you were just saying. Like at, When you start to sort of question all of that, to question this, this construction, and then you reify emotion in its place, that is less useful. So I recognize the world is endlessly complex and so on, but I think that this particular construction came up at a time when it was very useful. The Object of Medicine, Stephen Bowler, 2008, in A Sociology of Health, edited by David Wainwright. Page 43. We need to step back in time and briefly note the name of René Descartes, the founder of modern philosophy and source of Cartesianism as a school of thought. A devout Catholic his whole life, Descartes nonetheless established some of the key tenets of progressive thought in and beyond the Enlightenment. Chief among these, for our purposes, is his distinction between body and mind, hence Cartesian dualism, in which the former is considered in mechanical terms as in any other animal, but the latter understood as divinely ordained soul. There was no other explanation for the unique and privileged place of man in the world of nature than the God-given capacity of men to exercise reason, argued Descartes. Brutes do not have less reason than men, they have none at all. In cleaving a rational soul from a machine-like body, Descartes made the case for knowledge as we understand it today, as conscious, reasoned, critically articulated insight. In bodily, organic terms, man was no different to other animals. Indeed, in many respects, he was less well adapted to his life than were the animals to theirs. But in one exceptional and precious sense, he was blessed with an ability to stand back from nature, including his own, 
and hold blind evolutionary forces at arm's length to objectify them in order to understand and mediate their impact. So I don't think the issue is to just say, oh, that's a false dichotomy. Uh, I don't think the issue is to try and do the critique and abolish move, where I critique Mm. it, say that's a false dichotomy. Therefore, I'm just going to abolish it and let all the irrational emotion back into the category of reason. And anyone can have any reason for doing anything. No, no, no. What I would say is that category of emotion comes from theories of the brain and mind, brain and mind that literally posited, that posited a very literal separation into an irrational beastly part, usually associated with the body, and then a sort of a rational human part or even a rational heavenly part, mm. usually associated, you know, with like speech act, you know, speech or discourse. And that's the part of the dichotomy I think is false and that we need to get away from. If you don't allow people to have reason for doing things based on their embodiment, then you get this dichotomy. If you say, okay, I have a reason to go get lunch because I'm hungry. I have a reason to go to a demonstration because I lost my home. Like I got evicted. Then there's no problem with the category of reason anymore. It's become something different from the way we've treated it, you know, for the past couple hundred years. But ultimately, a couple hundred years is fairly recent. And you know, like, inshallah, God willing, there's going to be another couple hundred years and then another couple hundred after that. And we're eventually going to look back on sort of Hume's guillotine, you know, a brief period of, let's say, instrumentalized liberalism, a brief period of that. It was between one thing and another, and the thing that came after it lasted a longer time. So we're creeping now towards um, the death of subjectivity or the death of the subject. I under- my understanding is that the death of the subject sort of refers to on a material like on a material base level, sort of a decomposition of organized civil society into atomized individuals. And mm-hmm. then on a superstructural level, on like how we think and discourse about it you know, sort of a turn towards like, everyone is mentally ill, everyone needs to be managed. And like, you know, the authority to say what's good for you comes from society's collective parents, usually imagined to be the welfare state. (laughs) Yes, that's really sort of it. Man becomes not a universal human condition, but something very particular. So it's it's the death of the kind of enlightenment subject, the subject, the liberal subject, the subject that formed the basis of liberal democratic societies. And in its place comes exactly what you said, this idea of a subject that needs to be kind of coddled and protected. And this becomes a really pervasive idea across the political spectrum. And when I say this, it sounds vaguely kind of right wing um, to say like, oh, the, the liberal subject has died and there's this idea of uh, a subject that needs you know, protection and so on. And I disagree with that because that the left has really brought up this idea of protection and safety. But what, 
what we were talking about when I said, hey, do you want to you want to do this podcast um, was um, a shared interest in. In part two, we discuss the work of Philip Murawski and how economics has lost its way, whether it's possible to make capitalism more rational and what Eli thinks about the current conflict between Hamas and Israel. Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley.